بسم الله الرحمن الرحيم الحمد لله رب العالمين والصلاة والسلام على رسول الله وعلى آله وصحبه وسلم تسليما كثيرا إلى يوم الدين أما بعد اللهم لا علم لنا إلا ما علمتنا إنك أنت العالم الحكيم اللهم علمنا ما ينفعنا وانفعنا بما علمتنا وزدنا علما وعملا يا كريم رب اشرح لي صدري ويسر لي أمري وأحل الأقدة من لساني يفقه قولي My dear brothers and sisters in Islam, Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh. I welcome you all to our uh, fifth uh, session in the series, uh, Provisions for the Hereafter. Uh, this is um, our uh, first season, alhamdulillah, uh, or the first portion um, of uh, this particular season, walillahi alhamd, and today is the 4th of April. Uh, 2015. I ask Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala to bless our time and I ask Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala to make us a group of people that hear a good word and follows it and to make us a group of people forgiven upon our departure. Ameen. Ya Rabbil Alameen. All praises belong to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. We praise Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. We seek His assistance and we seek His guidance. And we seek refuge in Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala from the evil of our souls and the adverse consequences of our deeds. Whomsoever Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala decrees guidance upon, then none can misguide him. And whomsoever Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala decrees misguidance upon, then none can guide him. And peace and salutations be upon the final messenger, Muhammad sallallahu alayhi wa sallam. I bear witness that there is no one worthy of worship besides one Allah, and that Muhammad sallallahu alayhi wa sallam is his messenger. May Allah gather us with our beloved messenger sallallahu alayhi wa sallam in Jannah. Ameen. And remember brothers and sisters, as I said, uh, this gathering is a blessed one. Uh, and it's one that is covered with the mercy of Allah. And um, everything that we do in this gathering uh, is even more special. Um, thus never ever forget to make dua, to ask Allah for forgiveness, to ask Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala for His mercy. Um, you know, never ever refrain or hold back uh, or even forget uh, doing that. Try to keep yourself... Um, you know, remembering uh, these important values, especially given how important uh, these gatherings are. And that is why um, I encourage you all to attend the live sessions, uh, because these live sessions have those extra special blessings that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has placed um, upon these uh, gatherings. Uh, in the sunnah, Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wa sallam teaches us that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has angels that have been given uh, the, the, the endeavor of searching, of, of traveling the globe and searching, searching for gatherings such as these. So they all rush around the globe looking for uh, these gatherings. And then when one angel finds uh, a gathering like ours, alhamdulillah, which Allah has blessed us with in this century that we can even do it online without leaving our home, uh, then this angel calls out to all the other angels. And um, tells these angels that I have found a gathering. And all the angels then rush to this gathering. And they start uh, piling up on top of the gathering all the way to the heavens. Subhanallah. This is the reality of, of these gatherings, my dear brothers and sisters. So may Allah make us diligent uh, with attending uh, these live sessions. Ameen. Brothers and sisters, in our last session we discussed the lineage, lineage of the Prophet wasallam, and, and the reason why we went into uh, this brief run through the life of Rasulullah uh, or began it uh, was because 
uh, Ibn al-Qayyim rahmatullahi alayhi says that uh, when we understand that there's no way to Allah except via the Messenger sallallahu alayhi wasallam, then it becomes uh, mandatory upon us, right? Obligatory upon us to know the Messenger, to know the Messenger. Uh, especially since at the or the second half of the article of faith, uh, we say Muhammadur Rasulullah. So uh, Ibn al-Qayyim in, in his book, Provisions for the Hereafter, in the original book, not the summarized one, uh, he goes uh, with a run-through, uh, a brief run-through, uh, important elements uh, particular to the Prophet wasallam. So this is where he starts off. And then uh, he makes the rest of the book uh, the guidance of the Messenger of Allah sallallahu alayhi wasallam with regards to everything that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala uh, revealed uh, to him. So Ibn al-Qayyim rahmatullahi alayhi starts with, with a brief seerah, a brief run-through. And alhamdulillah we discussed the lineage of the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wasallam and, and we, we, we said that there's no difference of opinion with regards to his lineage up to his grandfather uh, Adnan and that Adnan is from the children of Ismail alayhi salam without doubt. And we established in our last session that it was Ismail alayhi salam who was put under the knife and not Ishaq and we shared some evidences for that. Now, uh, I just want to take you um, a little bit into some of the grandfathers mentioned um, in the lineage of the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wasallam. Because this is uh, knowledge that, that, that we don't know. And the reason why I want to share with you uh, the reality of some of the grandfathers of Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wasallam is because we know that the Quraysh considered Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wasallam to have the best of lineages. And this is established in many a narration um, in terms of when uh, it's, it's established even you know from the time when the Quraysh uh, stood in front of uh, Al-Najashi, right? Uh, the Abyssinian uh, king. So, you know, they established, or, or it was established, right? The, the Muslims established because uh, Najashi called uh, the Muslims to defend themselves uh, against the propaganda that the Quraysh brought to him. And, and Ja'far ibn Abi Talib, uh, he stood in front of Najashi and said that, you know what, this person who's come to us, uh, he's a person who we say enjoys the best of lineages. And then we also know that when Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wa sallam um, uh, sort of, uh, or, or when he sallallahu alayhi wa sallam sent letters to the different kings, right? Towards the, the, the end of the, the Medina period, uh, Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wa sallam's da'wah then um, entailed uh, sending letters to uh, different leaders, right? And, and, and this particular practice of the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wa sallam sending letters to different leaders teaches us that he wasn't a prophet only for the Arabs, he wasn't a prophet, a prophet only for the Arabian Peninsula, but rather he was a prophet sallallahu alayhi wasallam for uh, the entire globe and all of humanity uh, and all people. It wasn't like the prophets of Banu Israel, for example, who were specific to Banu Israel, like Isa alayhi salam and Musa alayhi salam and the other prophets, many prophets um, of um, uh, of um, Banu Israel. So Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wasallam was global was global in terms uh, of his message and the people that he was sent to. And testimony of this is the fact that he sent letters to uh, other leaders. And the, the, the uh, companions of the Prophet ﷺ continued the da'wah in this way. Uh, 
Uh, and this again is testimony to the reality of da'wah, and that da'wah should start with those closest to you, and that charity begins at home. And inshallah we'll get into this as we traverse through um, the stages of da'wah uh, of the Prophet wasallam. But as for his grandfathers, then from the list of grandfathers, mashallah, uh, Hisham has actually uh, stuck the entire list there. Uh, then you can see that uh, he has a grandfather uh, called Qusay. Uh, a grandfather called Qusay. And uh, this particular uh, grandfather of his um, was special, was special um, because he was the grandfather that rallied the Quraysh to take control of the affairs of the Kaaba. So we, we just want to try and dive into some of the grandfathers of the Prophet to understand why in reality uh, do they say that he enjoyed the best of lineages. The, the, the reality is the Quraysh, um, you know, they knew that this man has people in his lineage that we respect, irrespective of what he says, sallallahu alayhi wa sallam. You know, even if he's telling us to leave our idols, what we cannot deny is that he has giants in his lineage. You know, so we cannot attack his lineage. And that's why if you ponder over all the attacks that were made um, to, uh, against the Prophet wasallam, no one attacked his lineage wasallam. No one attacked his lineage. And uh, this is from the wisdoms of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Uh, because one of the objectives of the Sharia is protection of lineage. The Sharia aims to protect lineage. The Sharia aims to protect religion. It aims to protect life, it aims uh, to protect lineage, it aims to protect our minds, and it aims to protect our wealth. Right? If you open the books of fiqh, and you look at every fiqh ruling, every fiqh ruling, whether it's got to do uh, with ibadat, or the chapters pertaining to direct worship, or mu'amalat, chapters pertaining to that which is part and parcel of human life in, in, in this world. Any ruling that you pull out from any book of fiqh, it will take you to one of these five objectives. You will see that that ruling is there because that ruling being there helps look after one of the five objectives. Subhanallah. So this is how comprehensive uh, our sharia is. So coming to the lineage of the Prophet ﷺ, he had this grandfather called Qusay. And Qusay was the one who got the Quraysh interested uh, in looking after the affairs of the Kaaba, and not just interested, but taking lead, taking lead, becoming a leader in it, which teaches us how they valued the Kaaba. They valued the Kaaba, even though they transgressed off the way of Ibrahim alayhi salam. They left the way of Ismail alayhi salam, right? Uh, they put their intellectu- uh, intellectualities before revelation, right? Uh, even though they did all this, Right? They put their rationale before revelation. Even though they did all of this, they still valued the Kaaba. They respected the Kaaba. They respected the Kaaba. And uh, here we see, even before uh, Allah gave victory to the Quraysh against Abraha, uh, by looking after the Kaaba and sending the Ababil, those birds that pelted elephants, right? even before that, we see their allegiance uh, to the Kaaba and respecting the Kaaba. In fact, they would even name uh, their children Abd al-Kaaba, 
to be honest, uh, one of the uh, uh, the uncles of Rasulullah sallallahu alaihi wasallam, believe it or not, was named Abdul Kaaba. He's not a famous uh, grandfather. He was one of the brothers of um, uh, Abu Talib and uh, Abu Lahab. Uh, and and Hamza and so on and so forth, right? We know the Prophet sallallahu alaihi wasallam had his uncles. One of the uncles, one of their names was Abdul Kaaba, which shows how, which 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 refers to servant of the Kaaba or slave of the Kaaba, right? Um, uh, but we learn from this that you know they actually treasured the Kaaba that they would name their uh, children uh, after the Kaaba. So he rallied the Quraysh to take this leadership uh, position, and it is even mentioned in in some of the Sira books that the Quraysh would say to Muhammad sallallahu alayhi wa sallam that if you want us to believe you and you are who you say you are and you are a prophet then bring back Qusay bring back Qusay and if he uh, endorses you then we will accept you wholeheartedly subhanallah look you know look at this and this is why brothers and sisters you know always remember uh, that the speed of uh, light is faster than than, than uh, the speed of sound. Um, people will always remember you uh, for you know how you make them feel, and specifically how you make them feel in terms of your action, in terms of your manners, in terms of your adapt, right? In terms of how you make them better. A lot of the time we, we try and better people with speech, but our actions uh, uh, do not have an effect on them. The actions need to have an effect of the, on, on them first. This grandfather, look how the Quraysh raised him in rank. And they were willing to, they were actually willing to say, if you bring back Qusay, and he tells us to follow you, we'll follow you. Why? Because, you know, he took us out of being an average uh, tribe, both in, 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 in first action and then speech. Right? He made us uh, who we are, the Quraysh. Right? So people will value, uh, value add. And, 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 and this is uh, how we should live our lives. In everything that we do, we should always ask ourselves, what's the value add that I can bring to a situation? What's the value add that I can bring to this? And, and again, I'm going to reiterate, I'm speaking to people who are, mashallah, giants in the da'wah here. Some of you own da'wah orgs, you have people under you, uh, da'wah organizations, some of you run educational institutes specializing in teaching Islam. You have to ask yourself all the time, what value add am I bringing or can I bring? This is the way of a believer. Even when you're invited to, uh, you know, a walima, or you're invited to, um, you know, uh, any event, you got to ask yourself before you go there. Don't just go there for the sake of it. Ask yourself, what value can I add to the situation? What value can I bring to the environment? Because this is who a Muslim is, right? Uh, and and in, in the corporate world, this, con- this, concept, uh, or, or this uh, concept known as value add is something big. Everybody's talking about value add. They're talking about it not for the reasons of the Akhirah, no doubt. They're talking about it for the reasons of longevity and, 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 and having uh, a presence and a market share far longer and far greater than the rest. Right? But we want to take it to our context and our scenario. As Muslims, what is your value add? Today we have become people who write for the sake of writing, speak for the sake of speaking, attend for the sake of attending. This is not what a believer does. And I'm, I'm not going to uh, be oppressive here and say we, everybody, some of us, because of dhulumat yawm al-qiyamah. Right? Oppression is a great darkness on the day of qiyamah. May Allah forgive me. No, we do have uh, many people who speak value, who, who, who write value, who bring about value, mashallah. But I'm saying in general, right? We, we, we see this, this custom coming about today. 
whereby uh, people speak for the sake of speaking, people write for the sake of writing. May Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala uh, forgive us and protect us. So we should be people who always ask ourselves, why, what can we bring? We're going to this place, what can we bring? Because at the end of the day, when you visit a place or put yourself in the company of others, then you are giving them a portion of your life. And you are giving that task a portion of your life. And you're giving those people a portion of your life. Right? So, you are giving somebody that which is more valuable to you than your bank accounts. So surely you have to ask yourself here, you know, before you, you give somebody, is this an investment? Or is this a sacrifice? That's what you have to ask yourself. And we have to be people who work on investment. Right? So we, we shouldn't do things for the sake of it. Yes, if, if a walima invite comes to us, we have to attend. Right? Uh, but I'm saying attend uh, in a more robust fashion and manner. Go there with, 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 your, with, your, with your mental state of mind present. Where you actually, you, you've, you, you've understood the value you're going to bring to this gathering. Right? Even when you get there, where you sit. Right? You're going to choose where you sit. Because you want to sit uh, on a table that's going to bring you closer to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala and sit on a table with people that are going to help you grow your paradise. It is not going to be that you've just thrown away so many hours of your time. Yes, you're going to gain, alhamdulillah, from following the command of Allah by attending the walima. But attending the walima is the command. But sitting there for a few hours, that's, that's you know, from your goodness. So make sure your goodness is actually good. May Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala grant us the understanding. Ameen. Then brothers and sisters, when this Qusay, this grandfather passed away, he left behind four sons. Right? And the most honorable of these sons was Abd Manaf. Was Abd Manaf. As you can see um, in, in, in the lineage of the Prophet Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam. Right? So understand here that, you know, uh, we're talking about the Prophet Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam enjoying the best of lineages. That in the lineage of the Prophet Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam is not just any son of Qusay, but the son who was known as the most honorable of the children of Qusay. Right? Not any child of Qusay, he was a special man for rallying the Quraysh and, 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 taking, and, 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 and you know, taking a leadership role and, 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 and raising in rank uh, the tribe. Uh, and then from his children, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala chose the most honorable of them to be in the lineage of Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wasallam. So Abd Manaf, uh, he's a grandfather of the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wasallam and he was the most honorable of the children who was left behind. Now, after Abd Manaf, if you look on the, on the screen in front of you, and the lineage in front of you, you'll see he, uh, Hashim. Uh, you'll see uh, Ibn Hisham, actually. It's Ibn Hisham. Um, if you could correct that, uh, Hisham. Naam. So it's uh, Muhammad Ibn Abdullah Ibn Abdul Muttalib Ibn Hisham. So you can see from the children of Abd Manaf was Hisham. And uh, this uh, son of Abd Manaf, um, he came into prominence, right? He came into prominence as well. So he wasn't just any son of Abdul Manaf. He was a prominent son of uh, Ibn Manaf. Now, why did he come into prominence? Well, if you recall in the Quran, there's a surah. And that surah is Li'ilafi Quraysh, which talks about the caravans of the Quraysh. Right? And these caravans that would undergo summer journeys, the famous summer journeys and this famous winter journeys for provisions, for merchandise, and so on and so forth. Right? Li'ilafi Quraysh. You know, the scholars of Sirah uh, and the historians, they say that this Hisham, he was the one that started these famous journeys, these famous summer and winter journeys of the Quraysh for merchandise and food. 
right? So this is what makes him prominence. Uh, sorry, uh, uh, prominent. Now um, they say that Ibn Hisham, his real name was Amr. His real name was Amr, but he became known as Hisham because of another amazing thing which he used to do. What was that amazing thing that he used to do? He used to look after the pilgrims. How? By crushing and preparing the ingredients for a meal known as Tharid. Tharid. Uh, if we uh, try and bring it into the English language, we would say T-H-A-R-E-E-D. Right? So this particular um, grandfather of the Prophet wasallam, his name was Amr, but he became famous, famously known as Hisham. Why? Because of his service to the pilgrims. Right? Uh, and his crushing of the ingredients. His crushing of the ingredients. And, 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 and this has a correlation to the, to, to, to the noun Hisham. So he would crush the ingredients for that meal known as Tharid. Now Tharid is a meal which is made out of bread, uh, stock and meat. Right, this is what Tharid uh, is 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 made uh, out of, and as I said, it was a famous uh, meal uh, of the Arabs. In fact, the Prophet sallallahu alaihi wasallam, in 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 a comparison, would say that this is to that, like how Tharid is to other food of the Anbiya alayhi salatu wasallam. This is what they would say. Um, this is to that as. Uh, Tharid is to the other food. This is what he would say, sallallahu alayhi wasallam, because it was well known that Tharid, uh, in terms of the Quraysh, was something extremely special. Extremely special. So this is Hisham. And we learn uh, that uh, from this, you know, how there was good character in the Quraysh. Yes, there were bad people in terms of belief, and they did have some inhumane, subhanallah, practices like burying females alive and so on and so forth. But they had some amazing characters, and that's why the Prophet ﷺ said, إِنَّمَا بُعِثْتُ لِأُتَمِّمَ مَكَارِمَ الْأَخْلَاقِ He said ﷺ that indeed I have been sent to complete the most honorable of characters. This is what he said ﷺ. He didn't say I've been sent to bring about good character. He said I've been sent to complete the most honorable of characters. That you know, these people did have honor. They were honorable people. Uh, even in the jahiliyyah. Even in, 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 their, in their ignorance, they had some amazing qualities. Today, subhanAllah, we have people of belief, but they're the most stingy of people, Allahul Musta'an. Right? Uh, the most difficult of people, Allahul Musta'an. You know, they, they, they're never forthcoming. They, they, they're selfish. Allahul Musta'an. So, um, we need to, you know, uh, put everything in the balance, my dear brothers and sisters. This, this doesn't mean that, uh, you know, uh, a disbeliever who's honorable is better than a believer who's not honorable. Don't get me wrong. Right? In case somebody is thinking this. I'm not saying this because um, there can be nothing more honorable than belief in Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala and following His Messenger sallallahu alayhi wa sallam. But what I am saying is that as Allah says, Udkhulu fi silmi Enter into submission in completion. Don't let it be that you choose part of the book and you leave part of the book. You choose that which suits you and you leave that which suits you. Right? And also learn from this particular lesson how just the sharia is. That the Sharia is just. The Sharia is not one that writes somebody totally off because of um, um, because, because of their mistake, even though the mistake is great, like disbelief. Rather, the Sharia will acknowledge that this person has this, these big mistakes, and in the same breath, these people have A, B, C, D, E, which are considered to be good qualities. And we must take this into consideration, my dear brothers and sisters, that the historians can actually write this about some of the grandfathers of Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wa sallam. Right? And this is true academia. 
Because true academia entails total honesty in that which you write. You don't try and distort. You don't distort information and hide information uh, because you're trying to change the perception of people reading your work. Right? Like some of the insincere historians did about our messenger sallallahu alayhi wa sallam. They were insincere. They didn't have sincerity. And they wanted to paint a picture that was incorrect. So what did they do? They manipulated uh, the information that they put across. Right? Um, may Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala protect us. Ameen. Ya Rabbil Alameen. Now, as we traverse through uh, this lineage of the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wa sallam, we get to one of the grandfathers known as uh, Abdul Muttalib. Abdul Muttalib. Abdul Muttalib is well known because Abdul Muttalib, he was the one who looked after the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wa sallam after the death of uh, his mother, Amina. So uh, he took the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wa sallam into his care until he passed away. And this Abdul Muttalib, he loved Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wa sallam so much, right? Uh, in fact, it is said that he was the one who, when the Prophet was born, he took the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wa sallam and he raised him high uh, by the Kaaba and, and announced that he's naming him Muhammad, uh, the praised one. And inshallah, we'll come to it because there's, there's many wisdoms in terms of this term Muhammad. Um, one of those wisdoms is first and foremost that it wasn't famous uh, at the time, um, you know, uh, at the time that Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wa sallam lived in. And this is what the scholars say, that it wasn't a famous name, so that, uh, you know, nobody could come forth and claim prophethood, whose name was Muhammad. Firstly, there weren't enough people called Muhammad. And secondly, secondly even if there were some people called Muhammad, then Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala protected him by uh, preventing those people from laying claim to uh, prophethood. And inshallah, we'll come to that bi ta'ala. So this Abdul Muttalib, he was famous for naming the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wa sallam, and he was famous for raising Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wa sallam at the Kaaba. And he was famous for his love of the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wa sallam because this Abdul Muttalib, he used to have this famous sitting that he used to do uh, in the shade of the Kaaba. And no one was allowed to sit in that shade, even his own sons. His own sons were not allowed to sit uh, in that particular shade. Um, and Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wa sallam would crawl into that shade. And the sons of Abdul Muttalib would take the Prophet ﷺ out. Because they know that no one's allowed to sit here. No one's allowed to sit here. But Abdul Muttalib would say, no, 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 leave him for indeed he's a praised one. Right? And uh, this is where we learn, you know, that grandfather-grandchild relationship. This is where we learn it from, you know. And, and I actually have a, a short clip online, or, or, or mashallah, the brothers in Australia, they uh, uploaded this short clip online, uh, which you can actually view. Uh, they pulled it out of my Blast from the Past series, which is a Sira in the 21st uh, century that I started off in Australia, and I hope to complete uh, in different countries, inshallah, um, every Ramadan. Uh, so it's called, when the, par- when the parents are away, the grandparents will play. Right, for just for those who want to search for it, when when the parents are away, the grandchildren, the grandparents will play. Uh, if you just Google that and put my name next to it, inshallah, it will come up. Have, have a listen to that, uh, inshallah. Um, now, regarding Abdul Muttalib, uh, then he was the one who um, dug up the well of Zamzam after it was covered, or is said to be the one who dug up the well of Zamzam after it was covered. And he is the one who also made a qasam and an oath that if Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala gave him ten children or ten sons to be precise, ten sons, then he would offer one son in sacrifice. He would offer one son in a sacrifice uh, 
to uh, to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala of course so he was the famous one and this grandfather Abdul Muttalib uh, is also said to be the grandfather that grew up in Medina so his upbringing was done in Medina and Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala knows best I'm only trying to share with you information that's pertinent to us understanding how uh, noble the lineage of Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wa sallam was or any information that also is pertinent uh, to the life of Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wa sallam so this is the lineage of Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wa sallam Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wa sallam said that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala chose Kinana and uh, from the progeny of Ismail and chose Quraysh from Kinana, and chose from the Quraysh Banu Hashim, and chose me from Banu Hashim. Subhanallah. Right? So this is what Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wa sallam said himself. I'll just say that again for, for Hisham so he can write it for you all. Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wa sallam said that Allah Almighty chose Kinana from the progeny of Ismail, and chose the Quraysh from Kinana. And chose from the Quraysh, Banu Hashim. And chose from Banu Hashim, me or myself. Or chose me from Banu Hashim. So, Kinana was special. And the Quraysh was special. And um, Banu Hashim was special. And Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wa sallam was most special. And this again reminds us of the introduction of Ibn al-Qayyim rahmatullahi alayhi when uh, he said, or, or when he built his introduction upon that famous ayah that we spent many a session studying. And that was, Wallahu yakhluqu ma yasha'u wa yakhtar ma kana lahum al-khiyara. That indeed it is Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala who pro, uh, creates what he wills and gives a precedence to that which he wills um, over uh, others. May Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala gather us with our Prophet in Jannah. Ameen. Ya Rabbil Alameen. Now, brothers and sisters, um, thereafter, we discussed his birth. And we said that Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wa sallam was born in Mecca, inside of Mecca. And we said that Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wa sallam was um, born during the famous year known as the year of the elephant. And I did say that that was a time when people used to uh, understand events. <coughs> uh, please forgive me for that. Uh, they would understand events based on, you know, major happenings. Major happenings that everybody would know about. And obviously, uh, the year of the elephant was one of them. The year of the elephant was one of them. So, what is this uh, famous year of the elephant? What, you know, what does it entail? And why was it so famous? Well, um, this year of the elephant is called the year of the elephant because of the event of the elephant that took place in that particular year. And um, this event took place during the life of Abdul Muttalib, meaning the grandfather of the Prophet wasallam, when he was uh, in charge of the Kaaba and its affairs. Right? And um, as uh, we've, we've already accomplished, it was in the same year that the Prophet wasallam, was just born. Now, to summarize this event or incident, there was this king, or, or vice king rather, the vice king, he was a vice king, the vice king of Habasha uh, in Yemen. He became jealous of the Kaaba and the fact that the Arabs would gather there yearly for the pilgrimage, right? Because we know the pilgrimage was brought to us by Ibrahim alayhi salam. So pilgrimage was something that would happen. And the Kaaba was the central point. It had this central feature. People would gather there. So this was perfect for trade, right? Um, this is perfect. And this happens anywhere in the world where um, you have 
uh, events that gather people from all walks of life, right? It becomes the most important place to be or the place to be, especially for companies. Why? Because you just have to position yourself in one place and you have access to everybody rather than, you know, spending so much resources getting to them. Like, for example, when the World Cup happens. You know, why is it such a rich event, the World Cup? Because the World Cup gathers the best teams in the world. So you got to gather uh, almost every football supporter in the world, either via television or on site. This is the reality. That's why the, the adverts during the World Cup are the most expensive adverts. And, uh, you know, people doing trade or, or people will actually invest in going to World Cup venues, whether it's football, whether it's cricket uh, or any other World Cup. Um, you know, people will invest in going there and setting up their business and setting up their efforts uh, because, you know, that's, it, it's, that's you know, what you and I would call uh, a sweet spot. And, and we need to think about this in our da'wah, brothers and sisters. You know, many a time we say, oh, this is the World Cup, let's stay far away from it. But in reality, the, our, our attitude should be, this is the World Cup, let's see how we can, uh, you know, uh, make full use of the opportunity and exploit the situation, you know, if I can use that. Please forgive the term, but you understand what I'm saying. How can we exploit the situation whereby, you know, we, in one place we have access to a plethora of people from different walks of life and invite them to the best thing, invite them to that which they need to know when they never knew that they needed to know it. Invite them to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala and His Rasul sallallahu alayhi wa sallam. You know, even if it's in the form of sending written material there, literature there, or raising funds to advertise on, on, on websites that, you know, are known for gathering World Cup traffic, for example. I know, uh, for example, even uh, now in Dubai, uh, in a few years' time, they're having the, the, the trade expo. Uh, and, and, and that's big. That's big. You know, in fact, the whole process leading up to the country that was picked to host uh, this particular expo, I think it's in 2020, the, the brothers and sisters from Dubai can, um, can correct me. Uh, you know, just the whole picking process was a big hype was a big hype and people were involved and people were actually getting celebrities to come onto their camp and, 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 and pitch their country uh, to be picked for this particular event. Why? Because this event is going to run over a space of time and bring in people from all walks of life and bring in rich people as well and bring in small businesses and medium businesses and big businesses and so on and so forth. So it is the best place to be, right? So... Um, we need to be thinking like this, my dear brothers and sisters. Uh, you know, this whole uh, issue of uh, paying attention to sweet spots, not for the sake of fame or for the sake of growing our position in the dunya or our business, but for the sake of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala and His Rasul. So back then, you know, more than 1400 years ago, people thought like this. And here we have this vice king being totally upset. Why? Because the, of the centrality that the Kaaba enjoyed. It enjoyed the centrality. It brought people from all walks of life at least once a year. Right? So what this vice king decided to do, he says, I'm going to shift the momentum here and I'm going to build a massive church uh, called Qulays. Qulays. Q-U-L-A-Y-S. If we're if we just going to transliterate it. Uh, Qulays. He says, I'm going to build this, this big church uh, in, in, in Sana'a. In Sana'a. Right? Why? Because uh, then it will be this beautiful big thing that will take the centrality or shift the centrality the Kaaba enjoys and people will end up coming here and then we can um, you know, enjoy the benefits that the people in that region enjoy just because of the Kaaba. Now, his intention here as you can see, is not, uh, in, has nothing to do with Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala even though he's a Christian and even though he's building a church. Right? He doesn't intend anything noble. He's except, you know, uh, fame, name, financial standing, material well-being. So this is what he did. Now, someone from the children of Kinana, the children of Kinana, heard about this insanity. 
that how can a person try and challenge the Kaaba with a church? So this person decided to visit this, this particular church or this Qulais when it was finally established. And what he did when he went there, he stained the walls of this church with filth. This is what he did. He stained the walls of this church with filth. Right? Someone from the children of Kinana. Now obviously by default, Abraha became extremely upset. Firstly, this is disrespecting a religious uh, uh, emblem. Firstly, secondly, this is disrespecting the vice king and the authority in that land. So, what did Abraha do? This is what tyrants do. This is what people who are not sincere do. This is what people who call to themselves and not to something more, nob- uh, something more nobler do. What did he do? He became extremely angered. And anger is from shaitan. And what did he do? He, t- he decided that I am going to retaliate in a far greater way than the harm that I've just received. You see, this is what happens when people's egos are, are bigger than they should be. May Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala protect us. Right? And again, benchmark everything I'm saying to your da'wah organization. A lot of times in the da'wah we have problems because our egos are bigger than it should be. Somebody said something they shouldn't have said. And then we try to annihilate them. Subhanallah. This is what we try and do. We don't think of the bigger picture. We don't think of serving the da'wah. We want to call to ourselves. May Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala protect us. So his ego was hurt. So what did he do? He says, I'm going to put an army, not of one person, because you know only one person came to me, but I'm going to put an army of 60,000 soldiers, including elephants. Right? Why? Why did he want to do this? Simply because he could. Simply because he could. Did it make sense? No. You know... Uh, you know, this type of enmity towards another nation, entire nation, and uh, uh, another people, just because one person did this, does this make sense? It doesn't. So why do it? Because he could. That's the reality. And this is how many of us act sometimes. May Allah forgive us. We do things because we can. We refuse to speak to people because we can. We, we, we refrain from um, amending family relations because we can. Because we feel like it. Because we feel like it. May Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala guide us. So he took his army and he walked to the Kaaba, a very great walking, a very famous walk. Everybody knew about it, everybody feared it. The news reached the Kaaba and reached Abdul Muttalib and reached the people, uh, the Quraysh, uh, that this is what is happening. And what he did was this Abraha, he walked to the eastern parts of the Haram. This is what the books of Sirah say. He went to the eastern parts uh, of the Haram. And over here, there was the wealth of the Quraysh being looked after. So what did he do, Abraha? He decided, you know what? Not only am I going to destroy the Kaaba, and not only am I going to belittle these people, I am also going to steal their wealth. So he stole and usurped the wealth of the Quraysh. This is what he did at the eastern part of the Haram. Now, from the wealth of the Quraysh was 200 camels that belonged to the leader of the Quraysh, Abdul Muttalib. 200 camels. So Abdul Muttalib decided, you know what? I need to go and uh, meet Abraha. I need to go and meet this Abraha. Because now he's taken my property. He's made it personal. Right? So coming to destroy the Kaaba is not personal. But coming to take my camels, this is personal. So I'm going to go out and see him. So this is what Abdul Muttalib decided to do. He actually went and, and went uh, to meet Abraha and negotiate this whole situation here. And mainly the situation of the 200 camels. So when he entered upon Abraha, the books of Sirah say Abraha actually stood up for him and honored him. Uh, and the books of Sirah say that this is a clear t- sign that Abraha held, uh, held Abdul Muttalib in, in great regard. Uh, for, you know, uh, even though Abraha was from another place, and Abdul Muttalib was from another place, and they never lived in the time of telecommunications, they never ever communicated before. But 
in, in, the, in the eyes of Abraha, Abdul Muttalib was this amazing person. Why? Just because of all the things that uh, Abraha had about Abdul Muttalib and how he looked after the Kaaba and how he looked after the pilgrims and so on and so forth. So he stood up for him and honored him just like you and I would do. Um, you know, for somebody we greatly uh, respect, even though, you know, from, from, from the etiquettes of meeting people, uh, is not to stand up in the same way that people of other uh, nations stand up, by the way. Uh, this is something we should know, that standing up to revere people whilst they remain seated is not from uh, the etiquettes, is not from the etiquettes in our sharia. Rasulullah wasallam forbade this practice, that people remain seated and you stand up uh, in honor of them. But moving on, this Abraha stood up and honored Abdul Muttalib. So when he asked Abdul Muttalib to speak, Abdul Muttalib spoke out and said that, you know what, I've actually come to see you because of my 200 camels. Now when he said this, Abraha became infuriated and became upset and became cross. Why? Because, you know, all of a sudden, Abdul Muttalib has dropped in terms of his eyes and the way he viewed Abdul Muttalib. You know, he's, he expected Abdul Muttalib to come and talk about the Kaaba. And come and, and, and defend the grandfathers of, of Abdul Muttalib because they were the ones who rallied uh, to take control of the Kaaba and look after the Kaaba and be in charge of the Kaaba. So he was infuriated that what kind of a person are you? That you're not a substantial person, you're a shallow person. The matter is far bigger than 200 camels, and you coming here to speak to me about 200 camels? So what did uh, this um, uh, grandfather of the Prophet sallallahu alaihi wasallam say? He said, "Inna lil bayti rabban, inna lil bayti rabban sayamnaoh." Subhanallah. <laughs> and this is from a disbeliever, by the way, right? A person who worshipped idols. Uh, Abdul Muttalib said, "I am the owner of these camels." These 200 camels, I am the owner of it. So of course I need to come and ask you about it, because I am the owner. But as for the Kaaba, as for that house, then it has its own owner. And it has its Rabb. It has its Rabb and Lord. And that Lord will protect it from any harm. Allahu Akbar. Wallahi, I'm, I'm just out of breath just saying that, subhanAllah. This is from a disbeliever. Look at this, this tawakkul. Look at this uh, certainty that they had. Right, even though even though they never had a, re- it's not as if the you know the incident of the elephant happened and they saw how Allah protected it. That Abdul Muttalib has this yaqeen, absolutely not. He's saying it before Allah even protected the Kaaba, right? So this is a disbeliever and this is the trust that they have in uh, Allah Subhanahu wa Taala, who they accepted as the Lord, right? It wasn't that they they denied Allah. No, they accepted Allah as the Lord. Their problem was their associated partners with Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. That was their problem, right? Uh, they associ- associated partners with Allah in their rububiyyah, meaning in His Lordship, as well as in His worship, as well as in His names and attributes. So their problem was associating partners with Allah. But did they know that there was Allah? Yes, they knew. So this man, he knew there's a Allah. And interestingly, he doesn't claim protection of the Kaaba or, or, or uh, associate protection of the Kaaba to any of the idols. He says this Kaaba has a Rabb, has a Lord, and this Lord will protect it. And when Abra heard this, as egotistic people uh, are, uh, he became more more arrogant. You know, he he felt dead. Then what are you saying? Are you saying are you saying that I will be prevented from attacking this Kaaba? So he became even more arrogant and he decided to command 
uh, the, you know, um, his army to move forward towards destroying the Kaaba. And when he did so, the books of Sirah say the Quraysh actually uh, took protection near the mountain. So they went to the outskirts. We know we, we know Mecca is actually a valley anyway. It's surrounded by mountains. So they went to uh, the mountains and, and, and they took protection. And Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala uh, took care of the Kaaba. As we know in Surah Al-Fil, أَلَمْ تَرَوْ كَيْفَ فَعَلَى رَبُّكَ بِأَصْحَابِ الْفِيلِ That have you, have you not seen uh, how your Lord um, dealt with the people of the elephant? Right? Um, and subhanAllah, you know what brothers and sisters, if you ponder over this, if there was ever a sign or evidence or anything uh, that one could think of uh, in terms of establishing the fact that there's no one worthy of worship besides one Allah, is seeing, is seeing birds with pebbles that uh, can strike something uh, from high above with precision. With precision. We're not talking about, you know, may Allah protect the world from these drones that we see today. Right? These drones that, with all the technology, they're still collateral damage. They, they hit places that they shouldn't hit. They strike places that they shouldn't strike. Right? Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala took these birds and these birds struck what they were supposed to strike with ultimate precision. No home of anyone was harmed. No person was harmed. No child was harmed. No, nothing of the environment was harmed. What was harmed were the people of harm alone. Only the people of harm alone. So Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala tells us that did He not make their treacherous, uh, treacherous plan go astray? And He sent against them birds in flocks, striking them with stones of baked clay. So He rendered them like straw eaten up. So this is the famous incident uh, in a nutshell, my dear brothers and sisters. Inshallah, um, or just, just before we go for the break, uh, just take this note down that this incident, this incident uh, is said to have happened in the month of Muharram. Muharram. Uh, and Allah knows best, uh, this is a rough estimate, Allah knows best, right? Uh, this seems, uh, or the event seems to have happened in uh, what we would say to be the end of February or the beginning of March. The end of February or the beginning of March, 571 AD. 571 uh, AD. And Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala uh, knows best. Inshallah, what we will do is, is, is take a break here. It's 9.49 right now. So we'll, we'll resume uh, Makkah time, obviously. Uh, we'll resume at 9.55, bi'idhnillahi uh, ta'ala. And we'll try and, and dive into some of the lessons that we can take uh, from this particular event in the seerah. Inshallah, hadha wallahu a'lam. Wa sallallahu wa sallama wa baraka ala nabiyyina Muhammad wa ala alihi wa sahbihi ajma'in. بسم الله الرحمن الرحيم الحمد لله والصلاة والسلام على رسول الله وعلى آله وصحبه ومن والاه السلام عليكم ورحمة الله وبركاته uh, everybody welcome back um, just before the break we were discussing uh, the incident of the elephant why because you know uh, the one of the first things we see in the seerah with regards to our prophet صلى الله عليه وسلم is that he was born in the year of the elephant there are several uh, lessons, brothers and sisters, that we can take uh, from this event. We've shared some of them, but just from an organizational perspective, especially given, mashallah, uh, the people that we have with us uh, in our classroom, uh, then let us um, share one lesson that we can all take from this. And this is, um, you know, uh, this concept of being strategic in our da'wah. Being strategic in uh, our da'wah. Um, you know, if we look at the seerah of our Prophet sallallahu alaihi wasallam, this incident of the elephant really uh, shook, you know, the tribes of the Quraysh. Why? Because 
when they looked at uh, you know, when they when when they looked at uh, sorry uh, the, the tribes of Banu Hashim, when they looked at the Quraysh, they saw that Subhanallah, these people were assisted. These people are in charge of the Kaaba, and assistance from the skies came. Right, assistance from the skies came, so this shook all the others, and this lifted the Quraysh in terms of how they viewed them. And in terms of the importance that the Quraysh enjoyed in this particular region, right? And uh, when we see that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala chose a prophet from them to go to them first and, and, and invite them to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala first, we see the importance of being strategic in the da'wah. Because the reality is, had the Quraysh entered into Islam, then the rest would have entered into Islam, right? Because already, you know, these Quraysh enjoyed uh, honor. These Quraysh enjoyed respect. These Quraysh, in, you know, enjoyed a following. This is the reality, and that is why after Mecca came into the hands of the Muslims, and the Quraysh became Muslim, right? We see all the other tribes coming into Islam, right? Allah says, "Ida jaa nasrullahi wal fath, wa raait al nas yadkhuluna fi din Allahi afwaja, fasabih bihamdi Rabbika wa istaghfir, innahu kana tawaba." So Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is, 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 is telling us in the surah that you know, when the help and assistance from Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala comes and Mecca is returned, the opening of Mecca occurs, and you see the people entering into Islam in waves. Allah says, afwajan. Yeah, and it's not one by one they're coming. No, they, they're announcing the shahada in groups, right? Yes, they enter into Islam in groups. Allah says, فَسَبِّحْ بِحَمْدِ رَبِّكَ Then um, uh, announce the tasbih and praise Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala with the praises of your Lord. Indeed, uh, your Lord uh, is uh, excellent in uh, accepting the repentance of others. So, what we see, and this is, this is obviously just a rough translation of the surah. But the point to note is, you know, the, uh, we in our da'wah, and we as a people who run da'wah organizations, then we need to be people who are effective in our strategic planning, right? Uh, because sometimes we don't need to really hack, uh, or we don't, re- we, we don't really need to pluck uh, at the leaves, right? When it's enough just to hack at the roots of evil. If you hack at the roots of evil, then you remove all of evil. But if you're going to try and, 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 and change things, uh, or, or you know, whether it's disliked or whether it's evil altogether by plucking at the leaves, it's going to take you forever. Right? It's going to take you forever because leaves grow back. Leaves grow back. So Rasulullah started in the most effective way with the Quraysh. Right? Because if he was successful with the Quraysh, that was it. He didn't need to pluck at the leaves. If he, you know, it was more effective to work uh, at the root. So the year of the elephant, you know, uh, helped the da'wah for those who ponder really. It helped the da'wah in the sense that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala protecting the Kaaba with the Quraysh in charge of the Kaaba uh, had a major impact on the da'wah of Muhammad sallallahu alayhi wa sallam. Because of this incident of the elephant, those around the Quraysh lifted the Quraysh in terms of rank and in terms of their regard for them. So when the Quraysh entered into Islam, by default, uh, you know, the, the endeavor of Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wa would become much easier, 
right? And this is what we call effective usage of resources. And many people ask that, subhanAllah, look at Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wa sallam, in 23 years, he changed an entire region. We're not talking about, you know, uh, a plot, we're not talking about a neighborhood, we're not talking about a town or a city, we're talking about an entire region. And we're talking about changing this region without telecommunications, without satellite. Allahu Akbar, honestly. I mean, we know today, today, you know, even with communication, how hard it is to get, you know, uh, you know, to, to gain, uh, uh, to get people to, to listen to your message, for example, or to have access to people. Right? There's a lot of red tape, there's a lot of uh, things that come into play. Today, subhanallah, Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wa sallam did it. Right? With, without, you know, a big bank balance behind him. Without a big corporation, uh, uh, as we see today, he had Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, of course, uh, the King of kings and the Lord of the worlds, walillahi alhamd. But what we need to do is ponder over his method. Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wa sallam was successful because he used his resources effectively. He never wrote to kings of other regions before he was successful in terms of, uh, or in, uh, before he, he, he gave all of himself uh, in terms of his da'wah to the Quraysh. That's why we see he wrote to the other kings afterwards, right? Afterwards, towards the end of his life, sallallahu alayhi wasallam. We didn't see him migrating to Habasha or migrating to Medina early on. He migrated to Medina a long time after, 13 years after he became a prophet, right? So uh, this is just something for us to ponder over, my dear brothers and sisters, in terms of our strategies in the da'wah, in terms of how we give da'wah, in terms of who we, um, you know, engage uh, in terms of da'wah, sometimes, you know, we need to lift our horizons a bit and say, look, what if we engage the leader of this misguided group, for example? Rather than plucking at the roots, uh, sorry, plucking at the leaves, let's hack at the roots, right? Because if this person changes, I'm going to have uh, a lot of people changing by default without me needing to exercise extra effort or using more resources. And Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala uh, knows best. There's a, fam- uh, there's a famous statement in the English language. Uh, and that's where I, I got this whole um, statement from the statement about plucking and hacking. Uh, it says, for every 100 plucking at the leaves of evil, there is one hacking at its stump. It's a famous statement in the English language. Ponder over it, right? Hisham can write it for you and just ponder over it. For every 100 plucking at the leaves of evil, there is one hacking at its stump. So um, what we need to understand, brothers and sisters, is the importance of always uh, revising ourselves, revising our strategies, uh, learning uh, from uh, the results of our current strategies. You know, this whole uh, need for introducing into our lives and into our organizations a learning program. A learning program. This is important. Right? And, and a lot of us, I told you the other day, we need our own caves that we go into. Right? The other day I, I tweeted and I said that we need to be a people now that take out a day in our month. At least a day. And switch off our mobile phones and, 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 and go somewhere far away from our families and friends. And use that day purely as a thinking day. Just as a thinking day, where you think about yourself and you think about your families and you think about the value that you bring to your to this world in general, you got to have that thinking day. You got to revise your strategies, and this is what we call a learning system. We need to introduce learning systems into our lives, and we need to introduce learning systems into our organization, right? And a learning system is not just one that gathers data. 
But a learning system is one that gathers data and knows how to synthesize the data. Knows how to process that data. Knows how to turn that data into outcomes that are tangible. Right? Knows how to synthesize the data and make it something that grows us as a people. That grows us as an organization. And Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala knows best. Right? I'm just speaking uh, impromptu, uh, as they say, and that's how these lessons go. But, you know, I look at the people in front of me and I look at the story. And, and this is basically, you know, this is the seerah. This is the seerah. Read it, ponder over it. Ask yourself, what do I learn from this? Ask yourself, how can I bring this into my life? A lot of the time today, brothers and sisters, you know, one of my teachers told me, we are, we are a people now who do not read. And when we read, we do not understand. Uh, and when we understand, we do not think. This is the reality of us as a people now. Right? We are a people who do not read. And for those who read, they do not uh, understand. And for those who understand, they do not think and ponder over that which they have just read and understood. And we have to be those people because this is what Islamic scholarship is all about. It's not Western scholarship to be people who think and to be people who uh, uh, you know, uh, contemplate and ponder. This is Islamic scholarship, right? And, and this was the reality of the Islamic empire, especially in Muslim Spain. When the, when the Europeans were in the Dark Ages, they came and learned this methodology and concept and philosophy from the Muslims. This whole concept of read, and inshallah we'll talk about reading when we come to it, um, shortly inshallah. So take this into consideration my dear brothers and sisters, we need to be people who read. And when we read, we need to understand. And when we understand, we need to think. A lot of the problems today, my dear brothers and sisters, as, you know, with extremism and, 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 and our youth, uh, you know, um, falling into the traps of it, Allahul Musta'an, is because of this. We don't read, and when we read, we don't understand, and when we understand, we don't think. We, we are not people who ask ourselves the critical questions of li- in life. And the critical questions are simple. The critical uh, questions are what, why, and how. These are th- known as the three critical questions of life. In everything that you do, what, why, how. Sometimes we speak about when, right? How many of us ask ourselves before we do anything, what, why, and how? Even attending this class, right? Uh, or, or choosing to attend a dars, or choosing to leave a dars, a lesson for another lesson, right? Or choosing to do this activity over another activity. How many of us ask ourselves the critical questions in life? What, why, and how? And it's because we, sometimes we ask it at the beginning, and then we cease to ask it for the remainder. So we become a stagnant, you know, institution or a stagnant person with no progress. And as Henry Ford said, if you always do what you always did, you will always get what you always got. Right? Uh, this is an amazing statement from Henry Ford, someone who was successful in the dunya. Right? And there's no reason why we shouldn't take from those who say that which is true. And, and, and the sharia and common sense tells us this in the first place. If you always do what you always did, you will always get what you always got. Right? Right? If you want to, if you want to, uh, if you want to get what you never got, then you need to do what you never did. <laughs> right? It's a bit of a tongue twister, and the English is not so perfect. But you know what? It makes so much sense. It makes so much sense. So take this into consideration, my dear brothers and sisters, and take this from uh, the lesson. Take this from uh, the lesson in terms of uh, the incident of the elephant and the incident of Abraha. 
and the incident of Abdul Muttalib with uh, Abraha and Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala uh, knows best. Another quick lesson, brothers and sisters, that we can uh, take from this is our tongues make us or break us. Now, where do I get this le- lesson from? I get this lesson from the simple fact that Abraha, he held Abdul Muttalib in high regard. He was highly respectful of Abdul Muttalib. But when did he lose respect from Abdul Muttalib? When he saw him? No. When he spoke. When he spoke. And remember my earlier statement, the speed of light is faster than the speed of sound. Perceptions happen when people see us before they hear us. Abraha, he held Abdul Muttalib in high regard. When he saw him, he stood up for him. He honored him. He met him. But the moment Abdul Muttalib opened his mouth and spoke about defending his, his 200 camels, as opposed to uh, defending the Kaaba, what happened? Immediately the perception of, of Abraha dropped. Which means our tongues make us or break us. And this is true. There's so many times we sit in a gathering. We sit in a gathering and in that gathering, uh, somebody enters and they look. Uh, and they have this specific look, this look of respect. But they don't speak. And, and, and they're quiet and they're sitting there and we have this, you know, this awe about them. Because they carry this aura about themselves. And we also tend to change our behavior because we say, Subhanallah, this person has entered our gathering. Right? Only until the point when this person opens his mouth or she opens her mouth. And forgive the pun. Right? <laughs> they, they open their mouth and we say, Subhanallah. No, khalas. The respect, we, we immediately lose respect for this person. And that is why brothers and sisters have this habit of listening more than you speak. Allah gave us two ears and one tongue. And in front of the tongue, Allah put two fences, two walls, our teeth and our lips. Subhanallah. Right? Allah put two walls in front of our tongue and gave us only one tongue. And He gave us ears and He didn't put any fences around our ears. The ears are constantly open. So, our life should be a life where we have twice as much of hearing than speaking. This is it. Right? We should listen more than we speak. Today we've become a people who have too many opinions. We speak before we hear. We start uh, gaining assumptions, uh, you know, without even thinking. Somebody said something, they didn't mean what we think they meant. And immediately we start formulating opinions and start speaking out and creating a facade and fitna and sowing corruption on earth. May Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala protect us. When Allah gave us one tongue and in front of that tongue He put our teeth, which is, to, you know, which protects the tongue and lips which protect the tongue further. Because the reality is that this tongue will be a means of our salvation in the hereafter or our depression. We know that this tongue, if it's a tongue of, that, that, that is big on La ilaha illallah, it's a tongue of Jannah. And this tongue, if it's a tongue of backbiting, a tongue of lying, a, a tongue of gossiping, a tongue of carrying tales, then what will this tongue be? It will be a tongue of the hellfire. May Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala protect us all. So, this is common sense that I'm sharing with you, my dear brothers and sisters. It just needs us to ponder. Right? يعني ما أكثر العبر وما أقل المعتبر سبحان الله. You know, you know how many reasons to ponder do we have, and how few people that ponder. How few people that uh, that, that, that ponder exist سبحان الله. Right? الله المستعان. الله المستعان. So Hisham has written, I am listening to you, O Father of Walid. Uh, uh-huh, MashaAllah. 
Hisham has come with a, a, an, an, an interesting insight, mashallah, which, te- which is teaching us that Hisham is actually thinking, alhamdulillah, as he's writing and listening, mashallah. May Allah protect you, uh, young Hisham. Uh, from the evil eye and from any harm. And may Allah increase for you, mashallah. As you can see, some people can multitask, walillahi alhamd, right? <laughs> the, the, the notes in front of us are very good, walillahi alhamd. He's, he's, he's cleverly uh, keeping up with what I'm saying. And alhamdulillah, he's even adding the extras, the ayat, the surahs, mashallah, the translations uh, from their sources. And here he's saying, I'm listening to you, O father of Walid, the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wa said when he was talking to one of the chiefs of the Quraysh. And the source is Ibn Kathir's stories of the Prophet, yes. So the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wa here is announcing that he's listening, even though the chief of the Quraysh, who's a person of disbelief, uh, is speaking. The Prophet says, I'm listening, because we should have a habit of listening more than we speak, and understand that our tongues make us or break us, and Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala knows best. So, brothers and sisters, we've done the lineage of the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wa sallam, we've looked into some of the grandfathers of the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wa sallam, and what made them some, uh, some of them special. Uh, we've looked into the, 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 the date of birth or the year uh, that our Prophet sallallahu alayhi wa sallam was born in and uh, we've discussed uh, the year of uh, or the event of the elephant uh, the event of the elephant may Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala increase our knowledge Amin. now as for the father of Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wa sallam then um, the, the famous opinion is that the father passed away uh, and his name was Abdullah and he passed away whilst the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wa sallam was in the, in, in, uh, in the womb of his mother uh, sallallahu alayhi wa sallam so he, his father passed away before he was born, sallallahu alayhi wa sallam. There is another opinion which says uh, that uh, the Prophet, uh, that the father of the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wa sallam passed away uh, seven months after he was born. Sallallahu alayhi wa sallam. So upon this opinion, uh, this would entail that the father Abdullah, he actually met his son Muhammad sallallahu alayhi wa sallam and saw his son Muhammad sallallahu alayhi wa sallam. But the correct opinion and Allah knows best is that he passed away uh, before uh, Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wa sallam was born. Which means our Prophet sallallahu alayhi wa sallam was born as uh, an orphan sallallahu alayhi wa sallam. And all this my dear brothers and sisters was preparing him for prophethood. All this was preparing him for prophethood, even being born as an orphan. Because now, nobody could say that Muhammad sallallahu alayhi wa sallam hasn't come with a message from Allah, he's come with a message from his father. Right? There's wisdoms. Whatever Allah does, he does good. Remember this, my dear brothers and sisters. Allahu latifun bi'ibadi. Allah is gentle with his slaves. Allah is gentle with his slaves. Whatever Allah does, he does good. You must always remember this. Yes, in our mind and our lack of wisdom, things are difficult. And yes, things in reality are difficult. But understand that Allah sees the bigger picture, subhanahu wa ta'ala. Allah's wisdom is vast. And Allah's wisdom is based on His divine knowledge that has no border, subhanahu wa ta'ala. Allahu latifun bi'ibadi. Always remember this ayah in the Quran, my dear brothers and sisters. Always remember, whatever difficulty you're going through, remember, Allah is gentle with His ibad. Allah is gentle with His slaves. Allah is gentle. Whatever Allah does, He does good. It is our job to be thankful in, the, in, the, in, in times of ease. And it's our prerogative to be patient during the times of difficulty. But whatever Allah does, Allah does good. Always remember this. Always remember this. Yesterday, 
Um, I shared with the, the, the Zad al-Ma'ad team uh, a statement from Ibn al-Qayyim rahmatullahi alayhi which, 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 which we translated as well walillahi alhamd and Hisham if you can just stick that statement up on screen if you have it offhand uh, somewhere on your computer or, or somewhere that would be great um, and that was where Ibn al-Qayyim rahmatullahi alayhi is saying that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is merciful to his slave and Allah is generous with his slave I'm paraphrasing Right, uh, and he says Ibn al-Qayyim rahmatullahi alayhi, and, and he said the statement from Zad al-Ma'ad actually. Right, this is from from the preparations uh, for Zad. There you have the statement in front of you. Right, uh, he says Allah disciplines. Allah disciplines his believing slave, whom he loves and is gracious to, at the slightest slip or stumble on his part. Meaning, when you and I slip or stumble, Allah disciplines us. Allah disciplines us. It's not that He's disciplining us because He doesn't love us. No, Allah loves us and He's gracious to us. So, 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 so He says, Rahmatullahi alayhi. Hence, when the slave constantly uh, uh, is awake uh, and cautious, uh, so, hence the slave remains constantly awake and cautious of the slightest mistake. We become people who are, who are aware. If Allah left us, then we wouldn't be aware. So Allah helps us become aware by disciplining us and correcting us. Right? And we are a people, Allah created us and He knows us better than we know ourselves. We are a people who generally do not ponder when things are going smoothly. We, you know, we, we tend not to like change as a people. You know, we don't like change. I mean, just, uh, you know, I, I cannot tell you of the amount of people I've spoken to about the, re- the, the renovations in the haram, in Mecca, and the, and the haram is getting bigger, right? The haram is getting bigger. And people are, you know, feeling sad. <laughs> They're feeling sad. Why? Because, uh, they, you know, We're not accustomed to change by default. You know, we, we're sad that the second floor has been broken down. Right? We're sad that, for example, the Turkish area has been renovated, for example, or removed. To be moved to other parts of the haram. Because we want to see it as we always saw it. When the reality is the ummah has grown, alhamdulillah. And the haram has to cater for the bigger ummah. So renovations have to take place. But this is us by default. I'm just sharing with you an example. I'm sharing with you an example. So Allah knows us better than we know ourselves. If we you know, never had a reason to change, we would not change. We would remain upon that which we are upon. So Allah you know, sends us what you and I would call that curve ball. You know, that reason to think. Allah gives us, that, gives us that discipline so that we remain a people who are constantly awake and cautious when we make the slightest mistake. So this is a mercy from Allah. You know, Allah uh, disciplining us is a mercy from Allah. Allahu latifun bi'ibadi. Irrespective of the difficulty, see it as a mercy. And you know, I, I, I have a talk online and um, you probably heard this from me before when I talk about the two O's. Uh, there's a course that I teach, it's a, it's, a, it's a half-day course or a one-day course called Seeds of Change. In this course, I speak about shifting paradigms. And shifting paradigms refers to shifting perceptions, how we perceive things. And, uh, you know, the situation is the same, but you can see it from two angles. That's what, shifting, that's what paradigms refer to, and shifting the paradigms refers to choosing to see it from another angle. Because it can be seen from that angle. So... I discussed this concept of the two O's, which is the O of obstacle versus the O of opportunity. Many times in life when we come across you know, something, uh, something difficult, we come across, quote-unquote, that curve ball, that curve ball, we say, ah, oh, an obstacle, an obstacle. When in reality it's an opportunity. 
Allah has put a situation there for you to worship Allah in a way that you couldn't worship Allah before, had that situation not been there. This is the reality, and this is how a Muslim thinks. Right? A Muslim doesn't see Hijrah to Habasha and Hijrah to Medina as an obstacle. He sees it as an opportunity. That if the situation in Mecca wasn't what it was, we couldn't worship Allah by doing Hijrah. Hijrah is a type of worship. Not so, my dear brothers and sisters. It's for the sake of Allah. So it's a type of worship. But had the situation not been there to dictate the presence or need or necessity of hijrah, then we would not be able to worship Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala via hijrah. So it's all about, you know, people seeing it as the O of obstacle, but we shift the paradigm and see it as the O of opportunity. The O of opportunity. And this is what we must understand. And this is what Ibn al-Qayyim is actually doing for us. Uh, if Hisham can bring that, that uh, page just back into the middle of the screen with Ibn al-Qayyim's quote. So Ibn al-Qayyim here, this is exactly what he's doing. He's saying that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala disciplines us because He loves us and because uh, Allah sees us as honorable. And He wants to keep us on the way to Jannah. That's the reality. And then he goes on to say, but as for the one who has fallen in the sight of Allah and become lowly in Allah's sight, then Allah leaves this person with his sins. Allah doesn't discipline him. And every time a sin is committed, Allah gives this person a blessing, another blessing. Right? And the deceived, arrogant one, what does he, 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 you know, how does he interpret these blessings that keep coming to him? He sees this as Allah's generosity. Right? This is what the deceived, arrogant one does. He sees it as Allah's generosity. So he refuses to change. And it's only that Allah is leaving him to go deeper and deeper and deeper in his misguidance and in, in his aggression, so that the punishment can be greater on the day of Qiyamah. So that the punishment can be greater on the day of Qiyamah. This is the reality. Right? This is the reality. And Rasulullah said that if Allah loves the people, He tests them. إِذَا أَحَبَّ اللَّهُ أَحَدًا Right? إِذَا أَحَبَّ اللَّهُ أَحَدًا That if Allah loves you, He will test you. He will test you. And by, by the way, my dear brothers and sisters, our entire life is a test. The times of ease, in times of ease, Allah is testing us. And during times of difficulty, Allah is testing us. During the times of ease, Allah is testing us to see whether we will be thankful people. And during the times of difficulty, Allah is testing us uh, to make manifest, not to see. As we established in our first lesson, Allah knows all. But Allah makes manifest, to make manifest whether we are thankful people. And at the times of difficulty, Allah tests us to make manifest whether we are patient people. May Allah make us from the thankful. And may Allah make us from the patient. You know, Sulaiman alayhi salam, when Allah sakhara lah, Allah, you know, made uh, many parts of Allah's creation subservient to Sulaiman. Sulaiman alayhi salam says that Allah has done all this, has given me all these blessings to test me, whether I will be thankful or ungrateful. Whether I will be thankful or ungrateful. May Allah make us from the thankful. Ameen. Ameen. So, Allah took away the father of the Prophet ﷺ, not to punish him, but to prepare him for prophethood. And to look after the, the revelation, and look after the message of Muhammad ﷺ. So no one would say that, uh, you know, the message of Rasulullah ﷺ was a message of his father. Now with regards to his mother, then his mother's name was Amina. And uh, his mother passed away um, between Mecca and Medina, in a place known as Al-Abwa, a place known as uh, Al-Abwa. And um, 
she passed away uh, on her way back from a visit to her maternal uncles. Right, to her maternal uncle. So, you know, if we ponder over this, we can see that, you know, even before Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wa was born, his history, the, the, he had a history with Medina. Right? He had a history with Yathrib. He had a history with this place that he migrated to and passed away in, uh, sallallahu alayhi wa We discussed that Abdul Muttalib grew up in Medina. And here we see his mother passing away after visiting her maternal uncles. Uh, from Medina. And this is just for those who ponder over this, you know, the relationship of Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wa sallam to Medina. That relationship was there uh, before he was born sallallahu alayhi wa sallam. Now after his mother passed away, his grandfather uh, took him into his care. And uh, that was Abdul Muttalib, as we've discussed in Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wa sallam, lived with him until uh, he was eight years of age or around eight years of age. Some of the scholars say he was six years old when he when when um uh, when Abdul Muttali passed away, some say he was 10 years of age. But the, the, the famous uh, position of the historians is that Rasulullah was 8 uh, years of age when uh, Abdul Muttalib uh, passed away. And Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala uh, knows best. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala uh, knows best. Now, when Rasulullah reached 25 years of age, then Rasulullah left on a, 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 a trade uh, trip, uh, on a trip or specifically for trade and that was uh, with or, or for the uh, he, he actually uh, observed this particular trip uh, under uh, the leadership of Khadija radiallahu anha obviously she worked for her and he traded on her uh, behalf so at the age of 25 he actually uh, went to Sham uh, for trade the purpose of buying uh, and selling and uh, some of the scholars say he was 30 years of age. And there's actually a third view which says he was 21 years of age. And just for your information, brothers and sisters, there's also a difference when, uh, with regards to how old Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wa or how old Khadija actually, radiallahu anha, was when he married her. We, we, we have the famous statement that he was 40. But there's another famous opinion which is, well, I wouldn't say famous, but a strong opinion which is not famous, which states that, Rasulullah, uh, that Khadija radiallahu anha was around 28 years of age was around 28 years of age. And Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala knows best. And perhaps we'll touch a little bit on that uh, when we uh, get to the wives of Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wa sallam. And Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala knows best. So Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wa sallam went for trade. And uh, even earlier in his life he went for trade. And that was when he accompanied Abu Talib uh, on a journey. But we know that Abu Talib came back because they met uh, Bahira, the Christian monk who advised him to go back because of the clear signs that he was the uh, upcoming prophet. And, 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 and perhaps there would be harm upon him by the Jews. Uh, so we learn from this brothers and sisters that, you know, the life of Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wa prior to prophethood was a life of preparation for prophethood. And this teaches us how we should uh, look after our young and give them, uh, you know, or, or teach them to be responsible. Because we see here, you know, we don't see Abu Talib saying, you know, it's a rough journey, it's a long journey, uh, just leave him in Mecca. No, we see Abu Talib actually taking the Prophet ﷺ with him. So it was a common denominator, or common factor, uh, during that particular time, that the people would actually um, take their young with them on business journeys. And this should teach us how mature the people of before were. The classic mistake is to compare our time 
to the time of the people before. And this is what uh, the non-Muslims do, especially when they attack the Prophet sallallahu alaihi wasallam and 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 uh, you know criticize his marriage to Aisha radhiyallahu anha when she was six and and the consummation of the marriage when she was nine. A nine-year-old at that time was not like a nine-year-old today. A nine-year-old at that time, my dear brothers and sisters, was someone far older and mature today. You know, this is the reality. Aisha radiallahu anha was around 18 years of age when Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wasallam passed away. And she is the pillar of hadith, right? Uh, at the time of the Sahaba radiallahu anhum ajma'een, along with Abu Huraira radiallahu anhu, they are two pillars. Now how does an 18 year old end up becoming a pillar of hadith? Right? So it was a wisdom from Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. And the reality of the situation was not a reality that we see today. Right? Yes, if somebody says someone married a nine-year-old today, we'll say this is uh, abominable. But to now take today's narrative and apply it to the narrative over 1400 years ago is, 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 is I would say, academic suicide. Academic suicide. And, and that's why it's, it's, it's quite disheartening to see academics cite this uh, when they try to discredit the message of Islam by discrediting uh, the, the, the messenger who brought the message, sallallahu alayhi wa sallam, and using, using in particular the argument that he married uh, somebody who was, or consummated a marriage with someone who was nine. No, they were, they were mature by nine. And before nine, they were mature. Uh, and uh, not just in terms of their intellectual abilities, but even in terms of their bodies. Right? And they lived in a region different to the regions we enjoy today. They, they lived in hotter regions which entailed the body developed in a different way. Right? So what we're saying brothers and sisters is uh, that um, we must be uh, appropriate in terms of how we judge the past in light of today. Right? And uh, building on the initial point, then that point was how responsibility was given to them at a young age. That when Rasulullah was so young, he engaged in this journey to Sham. And we're talking about a journey that would last several weeks, right? In the heat, right? On the top of camels, subhanAllah. And, you know, facing desert storms and so on and so forth. Who would put their children, uh, you know, uh, in front of this type of, 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 of situation? But the reality is they weren't seen uh, as children then. Uh, we know that uh, Umar ibn Khattab, radiallahu anhu, from a young age, he was left to manage, uh, you know, the wealth of ibn Khattab. Uh, sorry, uh, yeah, the wealth of the, the, the Khattab family. Right at a young age, and he had to look after these camels and animals on the outskirts of Mecca. So they were sent outside of Mecca. Today, you know, we don't even send our children outside of our homes unattended. Our young children. In any case, um, the life of Rasulullah sallallahu alaihi wasallam prior uh, was a life of preparing him for uh, prophethood, and we'll come across many, many more examples. Now, with regards to. Uh, the stages of revelation that came to Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wa sallam, or just before that, uh, let's look at um, Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wa sallam actually uh, becoming a, a prophet. With regards to this, then, uh, we know that Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wa sallam became a prophet at the age of 40. This is established in the books of Sirah. And uh, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala teaches us in his book that, um, you know, the, the, the state in terms of human development reaches its peak uh, or, or, or state of completion at 40, and then just grows from there on, right? Uh, or onwards at 40. Because Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says, وَلَمَّا بَلَغَ أَشُدَّهُ آتَيْنَاهُ حُكْمًا وَعِلْمًا So Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala talks, uh, talks about Yusuf alayhi salam in Surah Yusuf. And Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says that when Yusuf alayhi salam reached this ashud, this uh, complete state of physical and mental presence and ability, آتَيْنَاهُ حُكْمًا وَعِلْمًا Then we gave him prophethood and knowledge. 
And Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala in another ayah says, That when he reached his ashud, meaning his state of complete mental and physical ability, uh, and reached the age of 40. So we see here Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala attaching this to the age of 40. And uh, most of the prophets of Allah became prophets at the age of 40. We have exceptions like Isa alayhi salam, but most of the prophets of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala became prophets at the age of 40. And this was the case of Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wa sallam. And five years before this, uh, when he was around 35, uh, another event happened which was a form of training for him sallallahu alayhi wa sallam in terms of his prophethood. And that was when Allah made him become a means of saving uh, the Quraysh from bloodshed. How? By... uh, you know, giving them guidance with regards to the Hajar al-Aswad. Because uh, everybody wanted their tribe to be the, uh, the, the tribe or their family to be the family that was uh, the family that placed the, the Hajar Aswad in its place. Uh, and, and they almost went into, you know, a scene of bloodshed next to the Kaaba, in fact. Right? Uh, this is how heated they were. The Arabs, you know, in, in general were heated people. Allah uh, al-Musta'an. And Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wa sallam was the means of guidance uh, and a means of clarity amidst that confusion. Why? Because Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wa sallam then was chosen or Allah made, he, you know, made Rasulullah be the one sallallahu alayhi wa sallam who entered the haram uh, at that particular point and they chose him to be the one to uh, settle the affairs and with wisdom he did so which taught us uh, how Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala looked after the mind and development of Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wa sallam before uh, prophethood. Now, Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wa sallam became uh, a prophet at 40 and this happened in a cave uh, because we know that Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wa sallam uh, used to visit the cave of Hira uh, because Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wa sallam wasn't happy with the environment of the Quraysh and Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wa sallam was upon that which I told you earlier that we need to be a people that think and have that day out just to think so Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wa sallam used to detach himself from uh, the misguidance and from the hustle and bustle of misguidance and put himself in a serene environment to ponder and connect himself to his fitrah to his fitrah and uh, this is basically what I, what I mean when I told you all that we need to have, uh, you know, uh, that um, day of thinking in our month. We need to have that day when you and I can connect back to our fitrah. You know, because we do have that inner voice. Allah has given us that inner voice that calls us to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Every day, every time. But the problem is that inner voice is drowned by the, the, the chaos and the loudness of misguidance uh, around us, and the hustle and bustle of life, social media, and so on and so forth. This is what happens. So, we need that day off, where we disconnect from our families, disconnect from social media, disconnect from the apps, disconnect from our smartphones, disconnect from our families, and so on and so forth, from our work, and and all this, and we actually uh, connect to our fitrah. And today, even more than others, my dear brothers and sisters, than other days. Why? Because we live in an age where, as we've said before, the phones have become smarter, quote-unquote. So it shouldn't be that the the phones become smarter and you and I become less smart. (laughs) Right? It shouldn't be that case. Right? We need to become smarter than the smartphone. So we live in an age where even you know, uh, during those normal periods of time when you and I you know, might uh, use as those therapeutic times, those times to ponder, we don't have them anymore. Why? Because our email is with us 24-7, uh, we're available 24-7, there's things for us to read 24-7, and we, le- we live in this age of uh, explosiveness in terms of knowledge. Knowledge is everywhere. You know? we, we, we learn when we don't want to learn. 
You know, it, it might be that we're trying to think and a WhatsApp message comes with a reminder, alhamdulillah, right? So that reminder now comes in and, and, and uh, benefits us. So we live in an age, you know, that even if we don't want to learn, we learn. So it's important that we are critical uh, in terms of our time management and, and, and how we, uh, you know, when we learn and how we learn and, 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 and when we communicate and how we communicate, it's effective. Otherwise, we're only running ourselves into the ground. Think about this and think about it well. You know, it's, it's very early on. Mobile phones have been around now for, uh, we're talking about 1998 onwards, and, and then they became smart. Uh, you know, we're talking around, uh, you know, uh, around 2005, 2006, and, and, and now it's just progressing. It's becoming even more easier. So right now, we, we might not have, um, you know, the, uh, the ability to gauge um, our retrogression. Right? After the advent of, 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 of these devices. But I'm pretty sure in another 10, 15 or 20 years, there will be these academic research um, efforts. Right? In terms of gauging where man was in the 90s and where man is now because of, 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 of these devices. Right? So let's not wait for the research. Let's protect ourselves from retrogression. Let us protect ourselves from retrogression. Uh, Zafri is saying that, can we do this in the masjid? Yes, go do it in the masjid, alhamdulillah. And itikaf is, is special for this. You know, itikaf is special because, you know, part of the pillars of itikaf is devoting yourself to the worship of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Uh, and, and, and staying away from the hustle and bustle of life. So yes, use the masjid. Use the masjid uh, or, 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 you know, uh, travel out to the mountain somewhere. You know, you don't necessarily have to use a masjid. But do what you need to do. The most important thing is have that day where you can connect to your fitrah. Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wa was doing this. And we learn another thing from this, my dear brothers and sisters, the fact that he went to the cave and he was guided. Because we know that Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wa went to the cave to contemplate uh, on how to worship Allah only because he did not agree with the norm. And the lesson is it doesn't mean that a majority are upon something that it must be correct. No, this is not the case all the time, my dear brothers and sisters. And as Allah says, وَإِن تُطِعْ أَكْثَرَ مَنْ فِي الْأَرْضِ يُضِلُّكَ عَنْ سَبِيلِ اللَّهِ That if you were to try and, and, and follow the majority of people on the face of this earth, they will take you astray. They'll, they'll take you off the straight path. Right? They'll take you off the path leading to Allah. Allah says this in His book. And Allah says, وَالْعَصَرْ إِنَّ الْإِنسَانَ لَفِي خُسَرْ Allah takes a qasam by time and says, إِنَّ insan, Indeed mankind, all of mankind is in a loss. All of mankind, all of us by default are at loss. Except a specific group of people. Who are this group of people? Ya Allah, إِلَّا الَّذِينَ آمَنُوا Except those who believe. Is belief enough? No. وَعَمِلُوا الصَّالِحَاتِ And they do good deeds. Yes. It's belief with action. It's belief dressed with action. Right? And they call to the truth, and they call to this truth with patience. Right? And diligence. They prepare well, and they invite well, and they propagate well, and they are patient upon the harm that comes to them from the people who they call to, uh, you know, from those who they call to Allah. This is the reality. May Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala grant us the understanding. So we also learn from Surah Al-Asr that the majority are astray. The majority are astray. Subhanallah. The majority are astray. So if you want to be a person that's always following the trend, following the masses, then think again. It doesn't, that does not translate into you being upon piety, or upon guidance. 
right? So connect to your inner self because Allah has given you the mechanism to remain upon guidance. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says in his book, وَلَقَدْ ذَرَأْنَا لِجَهَنَّمَ كَثِيرًا مِّنَ الْجِنِّ وَالْإِنسِ Allah says we have created uh, for Jahannam already many masses from the jinn and the ins. They have hearts which, which physically beat but are spiritually dead. They have eyes that physically see but are spiritually blind. They have ears that physically hear but are spiritually deaf. They are like cattle. No, they are worse than cattle. They are worse than cattle. Because they have the intellectual abilities that the animals don't have. They are from the heedless. May Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala protect us from being uh, from the heedless. Ameen. Ya Rabbil Alameen. So brothers and sisters, uh, Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wa sallam would go to this cave because he was connected to his fitrah. And uh, we can add to this discussion and say that you and I are not products in reality or should not be products in reality of DNA nor environment. Yes, environment and DNA play a part in our effectiveness. But the end result cannot be uh, an end result based on our DNA or, 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 or what they say uh, uh, as nature, nor should it be nurture, which is our environment. Right? Um, some of the intellectuals today who don't believe in Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, this is what they say. They say, you and I are products of nurture uh, or nature. We are the product of... Uh, sorry, we, we have those who say the, the, the discussion has evolved. It, it's no more uh, this or that. We, we have a proponent like the philosophers who say we are products of nurture. And then we have a proponent like the, the atheists and the scientists who say, no, you're a product of nature. You're a product of DNA. This is what they say. And Islam tells us that we are not a product. or, do, or Islam tells us that we do not have to be a product of nurture or nature. Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wa had grandfathers who were all polytheists. But he was the champion of Tawheed and the most beloved to Allah. And Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wa lived in an environment of polytheism. An environment which had, you know, inhumane functions and practices. But Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wa never ever ever did any of those things. He never prostrated to an idol. He never drank alcohol. He never buried or supported the burying of females alive. He never supported the Kaaba, uh, uh, you know, a tawaf or circumambulation around the Kaaba um, happening uh, whilst you're naked. Right? In fact, there are scholars who say that the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wa observed Hajj before he became a Prophet. And during his hajj, he would stand on Arafah because that was, uh, you know, remaining upon the way of Ibrahim alayhi salam. Whilst everyone from the Quraysh, the masses or the majority, quote-unquote, as we like to say, uh, in, 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 in this democratic age, right? We say that, uh, meaning the majority would stand on Muzdalifah. This is what the Quraysh would do. If they observed the hajj, the historians say on the day of Arafah, on the 9th of Dhul-Hijjah, they would actually go and stand on Muzdalifah. Because they would use rationale in front of that which was the way of Ibrahim alayhi salam, which was based on revelation. They would say that, you know what? Uh, Muzdalifa is part of the haram. And Arafah is not part of the haram. Muzdalifa is part of the haram. And Arafah is not part of the haram. So how can we stand on this amazing day on Arafah and not on Muzdalifa? It's better for us to stand on Muzdalifa. So they put rationale in front of revelation. And as a result of this, what happened? They went astray. 
they went astray. And they would stand on Muzdalifah. But what, if the you know if the statement of the historians is correct that the Prophet did observe Hajj sallallahu alaihi wasallam before he became a prophet, then this is clear testimony to how he never followed the masses, right? And how Allah prepared him uh, prepared him to be a prophet by preventing him from following the masses, which means you and I need to be that type of a people, not people who think with other people's minds or the minds of the masses, but be people who think with the directives of our natural disposition. That natural disposition that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has created us upon. This is the people that you and I need to be, and Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala knows best. We've said a lot, my dear brothers and sisters, but nonetheless, inshallah, that which is, which is beneficial. As I said, our lessons, you know, we, we're not here to rush through things, we just want, to, we want this to be a journey. Zad al-Ma'ad was a journey for Ibn al-Qayyim, and we want Zad al-Ma'ad to be a journey for us all. I, I will sometimes... Um, Sidetrack, but sidetrack with purpose because it's relevant to the discussion and relevant to you and I, especially in the age that you and I live in. May Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala uh, make us substantial people. Uh, may Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala make us uh, thoughtful people and people who ponder and people uh, who uh, are attached to the heritage of Islam, to the sources of Islam, to the knowledge of this religion. And, and people who celebrate this knowledge by putting it into practice. And um, without being people who uh, fear uh, the, the statement of Fulan and the statement of Allah, you know, the statement of, of, of those who judge us, people will judge us all the time, all the time. You know, and I shared with you the statement of, 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 of Gandhi uh, prior. Uh, and, and, and even though he said it it, it, it is a valid statement. And that is, don't allow people to walk in your mind with their dirty feet. You know, when Nuh alayhi salam came with the message, the masses were against him. When he built the, you know, the, the, the fulk, the ark, uh, the masses were against him. They were laughing at him. They were saying, where's the clouds? Look at this region. This is not a, you know, a watery region. What are you doing? Where's the oceans? If you were building this ark by the oceans, you know, we would, we, would, uh, we would understand. But you're building it in the middle of nowhere where there's no even water. How are you going to shift this thing? They, 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 you know, they, they were putting their common sense in front of everything and anything. But Nuh alayhi salam was upon fitrah and upon revelation. So he continued. And the day came when everybody understood the reality of what the haqq is and the reality of falsehood. Brothers and sisters, be patient people. Never act in haste. The Quran was never revealed you know, overnight. It was revealed over 23 years. Right? Don't rush when seeking knowledge. Be patient. But seek it well. You know? We live in an age of fast food and fast everything. Right? But let's not be fast in terms of our acquisition of the Sharia. Let's respect it. Let's learn it. Let's learn it well. Let's ponder over it. And let us make let us transfer the knowledge or synthesize the knowledge from that which is which it is into that which it can be especially in the life that you and I live in why because this is the reality of the information of the sharia this is the reality of the knowledge of the sharia it's deep it's deep and it can last the test of time and it will last the test of time because allah subhanahu wa ta'ala said that it will if it's not relevant to us today the problem is not with the message. The problem is with the learner. The problem is with you. And the problem is with me. We need to change ourselves. And that change starts with dua and supplicating to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Because success 
and all of success begins with Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. May Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala make us the flag bearers of Islam in the era that we live in for His sake. May Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala make us the carriers of the inheritance of Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wa sallam. Flamboyant carriers of this message in the era that we live in for the sake of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. May Allah make us transferers of the inheritance of knowledge to the generations to come and make those generations act upon our knowledge and further teach our knowledge to other generations. The knowledge that we've received from Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wa sallam so we can benefit from the generations that see this earth after we pass away and have been placed in our graves. Ameen. Ya Rabbil Alameen. My dear brothers and sisters, we've come to the end of today's session. Subhanallah, the time goes so fast. And Alhamdulillah, Allah brings us together week after week. May Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala allow us to do this for many years to come. Ameen. Ya Rabbil Alameen. I love you all for the sake of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Everything correct said is from Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala and He is perfect. And any mistakes are from myself and shaytan. And I seek Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala's forgiveness. Subhanallah wa bihamdihi subhanakallahumma wa bihamdika. Nashhadu an la ilaha illa ant. Nastaghfiruka wa natubu ilayk.